Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Hans Sperling. He is the founder and principal at Sperling Law Corporation. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. Great to be here. Awesome. So let's just start off with your origin story, man. What got you into business law and how did you get into doing mergers and acquisitions transactions? Yeah, so I was in law school. Kind of thought I might be doing be a litigator because that's what you kind of assume most lawyers are going to do. I was very interested in maritime law, especially because it was international. But I got out of law school. I was able to get a job at a firm in Japan, so I was able to do international, which is great. But of course, I wasn't doing litigation because I can't go into court as a lawyer in Japan. I don't have that kind of license, and I, uh, I can't read Japanese, much less Japanese law. I was doing a lot of business law kind of work, reviewing contracts, drafting contracts, a lot of different kinds, and very quick to start to get May-ish kind of things. Shareholders are shifting around shares and it's getting out, new investors coming in, whatever it is. And so doing that pretty quickly, and then the deals got bigger and more comprehensive. And I just enjoy it. I think a lot of time you can be on the building up side, so the deal side, or on the tearing down side, the litigation side. And I don't think the tearing down side is that much fun. I'd rather be on the deal side. That's a lot more positive. Everyone is really excited about getting the deal done and moving forward and so i just find it a lot more positive and very interesting because every deal is different how long have you been in the space about 20 years just a little more in 20 years you've seen probably a full range of deals from small ones to to mega deals and stuff yeah absolutely i mean everything from in terms of a whole business purchase everything from six figures to uh, hundreds of millions, mostly okay. in between, obviously. Are there more similarities between the six-figure deals and the hundreds of million dollars deal than we would imagine there be? I would assume, like you'd assume they're just like vastly different, but there's probably a lot in common. The contracts, there's going to be contracts on both sides. The due diligence might take a little longer than something that's a hundred million dollar deal just because they might have been in business longer and they got more at risk. Are the steps close to the same, like for you guys? Yes. Yeah, it's very much the same. You're right. The contracts tend to be the same just because we tend to start with the same contract example because that's actually faster. If we sit and you try to draft a shorter one for a smaller, it might make sense, but then you're maybe drafting from scratch, which we haven't really built a client for that. Sometimes I have shorter form agreements that I'll use on a smaller deal. So the contracts are pretty similar, but you're absolutely right. The due diligence it can be very, very different. I had one really small deal where essentially no due diligence. My client who was the buyer set up what he said, I got their tax returns for those few years. And he said, I figure those should be accurate. If those are not accurate, there's bigger problems. And they tell me what I need to know. It was pretty, as, as the, these things go, simple business. So he could pretty much observe a lot also and talk to the present owners. Up to ones where we had maybe 10, 15 lawyers around a table go through documents for a few weeks, pretty much the range, but definitely the big difference. But in a lot of ways, they're pretty Yeah, I forgot the name of the, the deal, but I guess one of the tech companies just sold to one of the big, big buyers. Like I think it was JP Morgan or something bought a company. Now they're in a big lawsuit because they claim to have four and a half million users and like they have like 200,000. They missed something to due diligence in that deal. I don't want to butcher the story, so I'm not going to go into too detail, but due diligence is important. What are some of the things as a business owner inside of contracts, inside of the process that 
as a buyer, we should look out for, even as a business owner, when you're looking at a contract and somebody's expecting you to sign it, are there things we can look for to say, yeah, I probably have to have an attorney review this first? Yeah. Of course, as a lawyer, I think they all should be reviewed. Of course, business people have to look at the costs of all that and how big is it really worth it. There's all kinds of things that temptation is to look at the kind of the upfront part. I think of a contract as, as having three parts. The first part is where the basic deal is. This is what you're buying. This is what I'm paying right up front, usually. And then you have the kind of lawyer part, the part that the lawyers love, reps and warranty, all that kind of stuff, indemnity provisions, kind of technical. And then you have the end part that's fairly standard. It's oftentimes labeled miscellaneous. It's valid in this state. And if something's thrown out, then the whole contract's not thrown out. It's like the rest of it's still good. Those type of clauses. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so it's that middle part that is probably what, what where people should be a little leery. The main part, they're like uh, the terms are fairer. Sometimes there can be funny little wording that can make a big difference. The bigger that middle part is, the more I would say you'd have a lawyer look at it. If there's a big middle part and you don't quite understand what it, you know, what it means, you're kind of reading over it quickly. You're like, this is legalese. Those are not kind of standard, but not really. In other words, if I was representing a buyer or a seller, I might, if I'm generating first draft, use a different starting point, one that favors the seller or one that favors the buyer. And that's going to be throughout. I mean, that's going to be virtually every provision is going to be a little bit more tilted towards one in ways that are not necessarily obvious, like little tweaks in language and so on. So I think that should be a bit of a red flag, a yellow flag. Those things can make a big difference. So you just validated all the years of, I've been paying for real estate attorneys because my real estate attorney's like, use this when you buy and use this when you're selling. And I'm like, well, no, he's just the same one. But I listened, I did what they said. And it's like, is my really like, does it really do, was that really important? Or did he just charge me for two sets of docs type of thing? But I get it. I read them over and over again. And I can see the difference between the two. So yeah, one of them is, you know, if you're the buyer, I think the moral of that story is no matter your buyer, the seller, you want your attorney doing the docs if you can. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes you so. can't. It's too small of a deal to make it worth it, but generally I think it's worth it, yeah. What are some of the common oversights that business owners can make that result in the owner, like the buyer backing off? Like if a business owner is trying to sell his business, what can a business owner do to make sure the deal gets done? If you're the seller, I think the more clean, I guess, everything is, the less you tend to spook the buyer. An ideal situation... I would call a lawyer, I don't know, a year before you think you're going to sell and just say, hey, through all of our corporate documents, our contracts, do kind of a mini due diligence to see if there's something we could be doing that we're not. And start kind of getting everything in order way in advance. I think that relatively cheaply, again, not for real small deals, so that when you get into the due diligence and the buyer is going through everything, them finding problems or finding raising issues or even seeing that there was an issue or something three months ago, six ago, they look at it and if there is anything, it's old, it was a year ago, now everything's been all cleaned up for a year. I think spooking, I use that word because I feel like that's what, certainly if I'm on the buyer side, if I find one thing, you're like, okay, no, it's a business, it's, no one expects it to be pristine in the real world. Two, three things. Things, little things, especially things that maybe they could have out to you and they didn't, or that they didn't even know about. Like that really spooks me because then I'm saying they don't really even know what's in here. So then I'm thinking, I'm telling my client, if I'm the buyer, we better really look at this because if they don't know, then the only way you're going to find out is for by us going through everything. And the converse of that, that is that if you're doing due diligence, you're going through stuff, everything's really clean, you're the buyer, there's no problem problems. I hate to say you let your guard down because we can never really do that as a lawyer, but you start to assume like anyone does that if, if this is clean, probably the rest of it is pretty good shape. Probably the business is in pretty good shape. Even the finances are probably in pretty good shape and the buyer just gets more comfortable rather than less comfortable the deeper you get into it. I can get that. If you start seeing issues early on, 
I mean, I've actually walked from a few things like really early on the process before I even got into the legal side of it. Like when the finances are really messed up, I was like, if this guy's this lax on their financials and their financial accounting, and especially things that could be, have a lot of liabilities. Like I own a pest control company in Oklahoma. I was looking at other pest control and his books were a mess. I was like, if you can't keep records like this, then all the federal records he has to keep for what pesticides he use on what sites and stuff, that's probably a mess too. And that's a liability I can't cross. I ended up buying the equipment and that type of stuff instead of buying the company. What are the other things inside of there? Like I get that and a business owner can prepare it's the same way with the financials, right? A business owner normally talks to a broker when he starts prepared to sell and the broker says, hey, I, you're going to take a little while to get you to sell. We need to change the way you do your financials to maximize your value. It seems like at the same time, they should say, hey, and talk to your attorney to make sure your corporate minutes are right. Your like goes out, you know, do a financials, do a legal search, make sure there's no pending lawsuits, no issues. Look at your contracts and make sure they're written well. Like there's not a any weird language and it keeps them from being transferable to the new buyer, that type of stuff. So. I think that's exactly right. I wish, I think the thing is people know generally that they have to understand the finances, that they have to pay taxes. Like they, they, they know they need an accountant, numbers people, and the numbers need to be clean. But yeah, maybe even this brokers don't necessarily, but at the same time, yeah, the legal stuff is also kind of similar issues and it's kind of like anything else. If there's something not great and it can't be fixed, maybe you can just disclose it up front. That's better than them finding it and then wondering if you were hiding it from them or if you don't even know, like you said, what's kind of going on in your own book or books, number books or legal books, whatever. So yeah, I think that's um, uh, heads off a certain amount of risk. And at the end of the day, you're kind of going to have to do that work anyway or have it done. So I don't know that it would necessarily cost much more. So how does a business owner protect himself from some of those liabilities? I know the during your due diligence, you probably looked at things like PACER and UCC liens and local lawsuits and local court dates. But don't you have, you almost have to go and look at the local court for every place they've ever done business with or something. How do you figure out if in Billings, Montana, somewhere they've got a lawsuit pending because they did it one transaction there last year and it didn't go well. I mean, how do you know that that stuff exists and how do you protect it from it? Yeah, it's tricky. There's four, four cases that actually exist and have been filed. There's Westlaw databases that you can search. It's getting better and better as more and more stuff gets put into big databases. Still, sometimes there are local courts that are not on any big database. You can hire services. They call it attorney services. That'll go to that local courthouse and go and to pull up the papers, actually on paper even. If it's the really trickier part are that they haven't been filed yet. The little disputes or, I don't know, the employee who's been, at least argue, maybe harassing in some way employees. So you have these employees who are baited under the surface, but they haven't done anything that would show up on a computer search. That kind of thing is a lot harder to get to. And there's a limit to what we can do about that. We can ask for information. Have there been any, to the extent they have an HR against any manager. Some of that information you can get, a lot of it is protected employee information or whatever. So that can you know, maybe depend on the jurisdiction. That thing, that part of it, that component, there's always going to be you know, a little risk that you just kind of take on. And that's in a way what drafting of the documents is for to allocate that risk. Is that what that reps and warranties is? Is that what that yeah, reps exactly. and warranties is? Is like basically you're making statements that certain things you're representing and warranting certain statements. Right. Exactly. And also the provision, which is saying who's going to have to reimburse whom if there's a, if there is a loss that comes out of it. But yeah, yeah the reps and warranties, uh, one reason why lawyers focus on those so much and they're so important because a lot of times you're presenting things that actually, if you're the seller, that you don't know for a fact. You can't check it either, really. Maybe you do a lot of things to kind of know where the bodies are buried, but some things even you don't really know. So what those provisions are doing is just allocating the risk. It's saying, okay, the seller is taking the risk because they're the seller or the buyer. In this case, the buyer is going to take it. That's where that little language, those little differences between the buyer side draft and the other side draft can really make a big difference. 
And it's a problem when there's insurance policies for those type of products, <laughs> right? <laughs> you can actually go out and get a reps and warranties insurance policy on a mergers and acquisitions transaction and cover cover the risk. There's even a couple, I've talked to a couple of people where they're starting to do smaller deals, right? There's one or two, not very many, but there's one or two agencies out there, insurance companies out there that will cover transactions into the smaller space. I used to, I think it used to be like 500 million to million dollar deal and above. Now they're, they're, there's a couple out there that do the smaller ones. That's yeah. a good idea if it makes sense financially. We're going through the process as a buyer myself and a lot of the guys that are on the show. We're looking at companies. We're looking to buy things, companies. What would be things that would indicate like, we, what should we ask or tell our attorneys? Like as we're, as we were having, because we talked to the buyer or the seller way before we bring you guys in, right? So most of the time we built a rapport. What are some red flags? Like, hey, I probably should tell the attorney they said this or that. What are some things that you as the attorney want to know if there's been conversations concerning certain topics during the earlier parts of the buying the company? I would say maybe a lot of it is as much as what the dog didn't bark, what's not said. Mm -hmm. If you find they started, like maybe you build a rapport, you're at lunch or you're having drinks or something. And they start to say something. It sounds like they're going to talk about a problem that they have or that they had a few years ago or a potential problem. And then they stop talking about it. Suddenly they realize who they're talking to, remember who they're talking to. Something like that or something that they avoid. Obviously, if they do talk about something that's been a kind of a perennial problem, high ter turnover of employees could indicate that there's maybe some kind of harassment problem or even more likely some kind of management issue problem that employees are seeing after they're there for a while and they don't want to deal with, they leave. Those are the things that would, those are the things that would jump out at me. Think kind of hedgy about finances or, or risk or lawsuits, obviously. On the other hand, and I think a lot of it you say poor, a lot of it is that feeling. Is this person, do they seem up front? And for sometimes if you're the seller, I would think you, you might be better off. Again, it's kind of like I was saying about disclosing things in, at the beginning of due diligence. It might be better if you're a over lunch or at that bar with, and just say, yeah, we had problems with that in the past, but this is what we did and we fixed it. And you'll see when your lawyers get into the documents, how we handled this so that they kind of expect it. And if I were the buyer, that would make me more comfortable rather than kind of like they're dodging you. Yeah. I would say even just a personal feeling like this person feels dodgy to me, or it might be worth telling your lawyer. I mean, the lawyer... I hate to say we're all cynical, but we kind of start premise that we're trying to protect client from dodginess and others if they're not intentional. We want to assume that the seller is dishonest. We kind of start from the premise that we're looking for that. Our antenna should be up. Eh? But uh, yeah, anything that kind of gives you that, that bitey sense would probably be useful. But certainly if there's something more specific, it's really worth mentioning. And it's sort of like going to the doctor. If it's not important, like I was at the doctor recently and I was, what about this what about this and the doctor like yeah you're fine like i'm looking at the data and you're good that kind of thing it doesn't hurt to tell the lawyer and have them say yeah okay here's a good one i actually uh, one of the deals i was looking at they had some issues right they had an employee's fast family member that embezzled a ton of cash from them and got them into trouble they shut that down and then it looked like to us that one of the current employees, their books were a mess. One of the current employees being a family member may be doing the same thing. Like, mm -hmm. we got to be careful because I don't know if they listen to the show or not. And I don't want to like stir the pot and cause any type of like, well, you said that about us on the show and we're going to come after you. But at a high level, where there's a, where there's an incident, there could be a trend, right? So when you see something that like, that, yeah, that happened in the past, is it something you really got to dive into? Because if one person's done it and they didn't go to jail, right, the family let them off the hook. It's a possibility that somebody might, else might be doing it at a, less, at a lesser rate, but it's still happening. You get this, that's the vibe I got. Is that something that's you're finding in these deals too? If, you, if they've got a history of something happening, there's a potential at some level it's still occurring. Yeah. I mean, especially if it's the same people who are there or there's a certain amount of stuff that you see often, especially in smaller businesses, like maybe there'll be a vehicle that's really being made, used made personal use, but it's on the books, little things like that, or losses and in income that are sort of moved to different, if there's more than one legal company, basically 
they're trying to lower their taxes, right? Put match the losses to the to the income or to the revenues. Anything like that, yeah, patterns. But I have a concept that I've recently sort of thought up. I've seen it before, but I kind of gave it a name more recently, which is financial due diligence and you have legal due diligence. I think there's kind of a third one to the extent you can pull it off. I call it optional due diligence. I have a had I was working with a guy back and he went to the seller, he's the buyer, he went to the seller, I think on a weekend, and he took some of his staff with him. And the seller let him go through some of their administrative books. And this isn't contracts or corporate documents or their financial books. It was really kind of the day-to-day routine stuff that in that business they have to do and, and that those that employee or employee with them would be doing, which I thought was very smart because those employees know better than anyone if something is done right or if something looks a little dodgy because they do it every day. But the deal was called off. Apparently, the employees both told him afterwards, like, don't buy that company. We don't want to have to inherit that mess. And then, of course, that goes to what we are saying before. If that most basic routine thing is such a mess, then, you know, what are the finances going to look like? So, yeah, but I think you're right. There tend to be patterns or take a certain amount of care or are concerned about not creating future legal problems. Probably do that fairly consistently. People who just don't take things seriously or figure they'll find out when they get served papers for a lawsuit, you know, when to start worrying about it. Probably consistently, not 100%. I think naturally business people prioritize business, making revenue, keeping the business going, solving the problems that are coming up, dealing with a vendor or a customer that's not working out or whatever, over making sure they had their board meeting you know, exactly the date that it says in the bylaws or whatever. And there's a little slack in those kinds of legal things. People aren't necessarily perfectly consistent, pretty consistent. It's interesting is I've interviewed at this point, probably 100, 110 people in this space. And you're the second, maybe third person that's ever brought up operational due diligence. And the other one I know is a solid second is two weeks ago when ChatPT was really popular, right? Everybody was talking about ChatPT. GPT. Yeah. I interviewed ChatGPT as if it was a guest. So I wrote, I prompted it over and over a bunch of questions and then sent it to DeepFake to voice it over. And it was one of the most thorough interviews I've ever done. When I asked it about due diligence, it gave me like five areas and it brought up operational due diligence. And I asked it what it was and what it meant. I'd heard about it. It was logical, made sense. In some of the ones we got far down in the deal, we looked at that stuff, but we never labeled it as operational due diligence. You're the probably the second or third time I've even heard that phrase used. The other one it brought up was cultural due diligence. Like how do the cultures match up? How do you align it? How do you, what is your plan to merge the, the cultures, right? I knew that I knew to compare it, that I didn't ever like put a checklist of due diligence. Like this is important to me, especially on a merger. This is important to me as our company and how our culture works. But yeah, it's interesting. When you brought that up, I kind of smiled because it's, it'll, I'm sure it'll come up a million times now that I've heard it, but I'm positive in the hundred other interviews that hadn't come up. That's um, an impressive compliment. You're as intelligent or as the, as an AI <laughs> that the world's saying the most is the most intelligent thing on the planet. But, uh, I'm impressed with it. I mean, I'm really impressed with the, the interview. I'll assume it's not posted yet, right? It'll be posted in the future. No, it's live. I actually oh, okay. made it go live right pretty well because okay. it was a hot topic. I gave it a pin name for fun. So it's Ali, A-L-I, and it's Pinman. So like a pin name. I'm interviewing uh-huh. a, a, the chat GPT bot, and I gave him a, I even used a AI to generate a fake face. So the image of the individual, uh-huh. is, so it's a voiceover. I didn't do that. I didn't go through the whole video side of it, but it's a voiceover. You can listen on YouTube too, but uh, everything's fake, including my voice. I trained a deep fake tool, an overdub tool on my voice. I gave it a few recordings and had it act as if it was me also. It's scary what AI can do at this point, right? What's going to get people in trouble, and I'll have you on here. You're an attorney. I'll have you on here and answer this. What's scary is I can, I have it open. It's on one of my screens where I told you have a four-monitor workstation. I can go over and say, write me a LOI for a purchasing company. I give it the parameters and I'll write one. And I don't think that's a great idea. Number one, it, I can even say it's for the state of Oklahoma or state of California, I mean, California, you can give it 
certain things. But when I read it, it's like, okay, where's the indemnity clauses, right? It's missing because I've done it for fun and I've read enough contracts from the real estate world and this and no, there's certain things that should be in every contract. And some of that stuff just not there quite yet. Yeah. My concern is people are going to use this because it answers the question. It seems confident in its answer. So the people are going to assume it's a good answer. And maybe for a non-disclosure agreement, that's fine because it's really boilerplate and generic and doesn't matter, but <laughs> it doesn't hurt as much if mm -hmm. something goes wrong. But for everything else, I don't think that's a great idea. What's your thought process yeah. on that? Yeah, no, I agree. It scares me for the same reason. That, and I've already had that happen years ago before all this mm -hmm. AI, just with people go on the internet, they do a search, they pull up a few DFs, like that one looks pretty good, how to be, but they may have made a mistake. Like they, they pulled up a buyer's one, seller one, or, or like you say, they're just incomplete. I would go even further to you. The LOI is particularly bad, I think, because it's very, there's not so much legalese as in other con regular contract, but it's, there's a lot of things that are very specific to that deal. So I would be concerned if AI really captured that. But I would go further. I found with um, uh, non-disclosure agreements, when I was first starting out, they would, I was an employee lawyer, an associate at a firm, and they would give you those because it's a short, small contract and you can do it you know, pretty, pretty quickly. I think it actually can be a big difference between one that's well-crafted well from the point of that party. Um, you know, I've had people say, oh, it's okay. It's, I have a non-disclosure agreement. And I'd say in that particular instance, cover this because that's something that oftentimes there's an exception in a non-disclosure agreement. And a lot of times the ones that they pulled off the down, it's like a two paragraphs or something like that. That's probably the simplest contract. And there can be differences that different. So for example, there's five typical exceptions to the non-disclosure obligation. And it's stuff like, let's say a court orders you to turn over, to disclose what's covered mm -hmm. by the non-disclosure agreement. So we put an exception. So, you know, you don't have a situation where the court is saying you have to disclose it and the contract says you can't disclose it. Another exception would be for um, things that are already in the public domain. So yeah, it would be covered, but it turns out it's out there somewhere. And we found it through that channel. Most non-disclosure situations, those are never going to come up and become an issue. But if it's that much, bad for that risky for small simple contract that could be one five pages yeah imagine like for a, an asset purchase agreement or a share purchase agreement so yeah that's what really scares me is that people will go out and it looks good confident with it obviously it's going to save them a lot of money time uh, i think a lot of people really set themselves up you know, for a problem that way if it fired back and said okay in order for me to do that i need these elements from you and gave you a list of stuff it needed, then maybe it could become more like, what state are you in? What state are they in? What's the name of them? If it gave you a kind of same thing you would ask for, if it did the lawyer side of it and go, hey, in order to do this, I need to know what's the structure of the deal? What's this? What's this? What's this? But it, you, you, you prompt it, ask a question, it answers it. That's the biggest problem I see in it is it's only as accurate as how accurate you can ask the question, right? So there's... Theoretically, could you produce something that would mirror what an attorney would do? Absolutely. If you're an attorney and you know what that what you would ask anyway, you could probably sit down and prompt the thing to write a decent one. Because you'd say, okay, include this, this, and this. The name of the business is that. That's for the here's the terms. Make sure you have this clause, this clause, this clause, this clause. And you just gave it a really long prompt. It'd probably do a pretty good job. But power in AI would was, and I hate to we're off on a tangent on AI here, but the power inside of that is Who's asking the questions and, and knowing what to ask it? That's And I explained that to somebody who asked, well, if it does such a great job, why do we need mentors for them? I did it on mentoring and buying and selling businesses. I said, you got to remember, I've interviewed over 100 people, 105 people. That means I've spent 105, 110 hours talking to professionals, asking questions. And then it's probably the equivalent of my time listening to my own shows and listening to the content. So yeah, I've got 200 hours into 300 hours into this, like from listening to it, editing it, working with the writers or write the stories on it. I knew what to ask it. I knew what the next logical question was. So it flowed like a really, like an interview, but it wasn't because if somebody sat down and goes, okay, AI, show me how to buy a business. I think they would have got different results. 
because I knew what like, I knew that it was missing something. So I asked it the right question. So I, that's my big concern is there's a risk that's out there in that. So let's go back to uh, something more in your normal day to day wheelhouse. I'm sure you're going to get the message with the AI before long because I think it's going to be in the next, I'd say in the next 12 or 18 months. If you're not paying attention to this, it could hurt you as an attorney. There's already one out there that has been around for years. I think it's by IBM Watson. That's a really good yeah. paralegal. Have you heard of the, like it's, I think it's called Watson or something like that. It's been around for years, but attorneys use it. And uh-huh. it's a better paralegal than most paralegal services because uh-huh. you can just plug into it and ask it for for cases and case, what is it called? Preferences or I forgot what it's called. And it does better research than a team of paralegals would. And it does it in 55 seconds as opposed to three weeks. Yeah, right. And there's more services coming out recently. Let's go back to we're buying a business or we're selling a business. We talked about the early indicators that we that we probably ought to have an attorney really dive into us or, hey, this is an indicator that we put the attorney on higher alert. What are some things that you look for? I mean, when do you come into the deal? Is it after financial due diligence, due financial? When should somebody employ and think about the cost of it too? When should somebody call the attorney and say, okay, we're at this stage now. We really need to know if, if it passes legal. Because I think more companies will fail the financial due diligence than the legal side of it, right? Often than not, the money's not where it's supposed to be, not managed correctly. It's not big enough, not as big as they say it are, and it's going to fail financial due diligence. So in my gut, I'm saying that once I'm comfortable with the finances, I'll probably contact the attorney. But correct me. Is that right? Wrong? Is that good? Bad? I think that's the right idea, yeah. I think just as a practical matter, the low-hanging fruit, start with the due diligence that's easiest, which might be the operational even, if you're doing that, and then the financial, especially if you're hiring an accountant to go through everything, you know, and then the legal. That makes sense. The only issue that I would get into there is that what tends to happen is everything takes longer than anybody thinks it's going to. And so if you're the guy at the end of the line, in that case, the lawyer doing the legal due diligence and everything else takes longer and longer than the amount of time you're left to do what you're supposed to do get squeezed and you can end up where you almost don't want to do it as a lawyer not given enough time you're afraid of you don't want to do it inadequately but not do a good job so if you have the time that's probably a good way do the cheapest one let's say operational if you're doing something like that financial and then legal but otherwise i start to compress them like you start to get an idea about the finances at look okay, and start to pull in a lawyer to go to the, the legal books. You see me laugh in the middle of that. I honestly think I related to you as I was and when I was in the IT. Everybody wants the five nine, six nines, like high availability, no outages, but nobody wants to pay for the time and energy it takes to get an ironclad computer system. Mm-hmm. I bet it's the same way inside of this. Everybody wants an ironclad deal. But when they hand it to you, they want it done because they think it's already a good deal, right? So all of a sudden, they don't want to pay a bunch of legal fees and have you spend two weeks, three weeks, five weeks, a month, two months to do your job and create an ironclad deal. They automatically think they have it. And it's one of those, I'm glad I'm out of the IT world. I was in it for quite a while, but I used to call it a thankless job. Nobody wants to give you the funding to get it done right. And everybody just wants to scream at you when it went wrong. Yeah, exactly. And it's understandable in a way because... By the time it comes to us, the deal's often kind of been alive in some form for a long time. Like I've deals come that they've been working on them for two years from when mm-hmm. they first made the contact and started negotiating. And they've gone through those other phases and they're happy with that. So yeah, they're, they just get it done at that point. Um, and that is, that's kind of one of the normal tensions of work, probably kind of like IT work, that they want it quick and you want all the time that you can to do it as thoroughly as you can. And there's always a line of tension there. Sometimes you just have to tell people, I need more time. I can't do a good job in that amount of time. I think if they end that, that you're saying, look, I can't do a sloppy job. Like you might as well not have me there. Um, Where I was going to go here is the majority of our audience are probably that SBA level where they're buying a deal that they can purchase outright for 5 million or less for the constraints of the SBA loan. There's a few, I've got a decent percentage of the listeners that are playing above that. But not a whole lot. And even there, they're playing under the P&E game because our whole thing is small to medium business. So I'd say I think probably 30 million and below is the biggest deal that we would see. Inside of that, if a deal's 30 million or smaller as far as an acquisition cost, what is a reasonable timeline 
in most industries. I know it depends if it's, if you're buying somebody, if you're a lawyer and buying somebody else's law firm, that's going to take a lot because you, everything you do is legal. Right? And you're buying a pit bull from a pit pools, <laughs> right? There's a chance, there's a bigger chance for a fight. But that said, like in most industries and stuff, what do you think? If I came to you and what set the expectation of how that timeline works and how much time you need to do your job legitimately and thoroughly? Yeah, it depends on a lot of things. Like you said, I guess comfortably on a typical deal, I would say a month, maybe more or less would be average. You kind of do have to bear in mind that even if I'm focusing, lawyers focusing on that deal mainly, there's something else that they got to do. There's going to be some existing client who calls and asks questions. So they can't necessarily focus 100% on that. Now, if you're doing a big enough deal, they can pull in and get a larger firm. We'd pull in associates and they would be doing nothing but that deal for that time period. So a month is usually good, but that's a month of actually doing Because what happens a lot is the business person will tell me, I'm going to, I'm going to do this deal. And they give me plenty of lead time, which it's really not even three months lead time. Cause then I can clear my schedule and make sure that I'm available. But then let's say I get three months time from the time they really want to close. But the first two months, nothing happens. They're not ready to do the legal diligence or I'm asking for documents and they're just not coming yet. People are focusing on other things. So the actual time I have to do it gets more and more compressed. But a really nice, clean and a lot of deals. If I know two to three months in advance, like oh, this is coming and I can start to even pull up some examples I have and start doing a draft and then have a solid month. Again, the due diligence can vary a lot, depends on what. Sometimes the business doesn't really have that many contracts or the contracts they have are, they're using the same form over and over again for a clients or whatever. So those are, can be pretty quick. Other times they have a lot of custom contracts, different deals with different vendors or whatever. And those can take a long time. And then if there's things that need to be cleaned up, then that takes more time if everything is in pretty good shape. But yeah, a month of actually mainly focusing on that is usually good. It could be less if it's a simpler deal. could be more if it's but that's kind of, I get park. Is there anything that the buyer and or seller could do to speed that up? Like have a set, certain set of data available for you? I don't I know what it would be, but like. Here's the name, here's the business entity, here's the EIN number, here's every state they've ever done business in, here's their corporate docs, here's the meeting minutes, like here's the deal room. I mean, I don't I, I don't know what, a month's not that big of a deal, right? But if you're looking at a process that you've been already negotiating work with them for 60 days, the financial due diligence is getting close to being done. In the seller's mind, often, especially small businesses, they think they're about ready to get a check and you go, okay, now I'm going to hand it over to my attorneys. And the problem you have with that, and there's a reason why a lot of these small business guys and the guys teaching small business acquisitions and say, just make, you know, don't, don't use debt is if you can get the owner to finance 50% or more of it, have the attorney lessen the due diligence thing. Cause you can put clauses in where the, you protect yourself because there's a big car seller carry back or a seller finance, right? Just, and I just talked to interviews with somebody earlier today, and that's all he does. Like we put a big chunk down. We make sure the, the owner has got skin in the game. Our due diligence is fairly simple. We've done a bunch of these deals because if something goes wrong, it's in our contract. It, it comes out of the, what we owe them left. And I was like, yeah, that works until it doesn't. <laughs> when you say that is, it all comes down to how that provision is drafted and negotiated in the agreement, which if they haven't put the time and had the lawyer get into that, maybe find out that. One of those funny little words in there was actually an exemption to an exception to a, and actually that thing isn't covered. In fairness, a business person who's doing that has to kind of weigh all those things. I'm a lawyer. I'm always more comfortable the more that I'm able to get into it. The smaller the deal, the less they can afford legal services. And like you say, people are kind of ready to go. It's already been a long time. And I think people are also afraid. Lawyers are going to raise a lot of issues and argue about things that maybe don't need to be argued about. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, from the point of view of a, of a transactional lawyer, a deals lawyer, litigation lawyers often look that way to me. Like they're looking for stuff to fight about. And in a way they are. The more issues you can raise in your litigation, especially if you're the one suing, in a way the better. It gives you bargaining chips, if nothing else, even if they don't pan out 
Absolutely, at the end. If you can have a little bit of that kind of thing, create bargaining chips, raise a little issue that's maybe not as serious as you're making it out to be so that you have something to trade the other guy. But generally, find those tactics don't work that well. It's not really a clever little sneaky thing. It's more of a big strategic thing. And you know what the deal is. And the lawyer and the people on the other side know what the deal is. So the straightforward attack, I think, is better. There's plenty of real issues to focus on. There's no need to really invent stuff. But how can you, your general question was, how can you maybe compress that? Because a month will feel like a long time. But yeah, the more that you have stuff set up already, one thing you can do is usually have a due diligence checklist, which is what we go into it and we're going through. You could, let's say you get your people's financial due diligence. You don't want to get the lawyer's moon yet, but ask the lawyer, do you have a due diligence checklist that you can give me now? And I'll go through data room if there is a data room, because sometimes the seller will have a really organized data room and it's all great. It's actually really easy. Maybe there's a lot of stuff, but it's well organized. And other times there's like nothing. And in that time you can be getting together because what can happening that could be frustrating for all the parties is if none of that has been done, those in at the end and they have to be going through files and what a lot of other people who charge a lot less money or don't charge because they're the staff of the seller, the buyer, whatever, could have done earlier, quicker, sooner, I mean, and at way less expense. So yeah, anything that you can do to get that set up in advance so that you're kind of giving the lawyer a package definitely could save a lot of time and legal fees. And you might think the lawyer might be disappointed. Oh, too bad. I'm not going to make all the money. Actually, will be, at least I would be. I'd be like, great. I don't don't have to do all this other stuff and then worry about if the client is going to say, Hey, I didn't really need you to just go through files and pull stuff out. I really have to pay for that. Anyone could have done a lot of people could have done that. I'd much rather have it come to me in a nice, neat package that I can work with and, and the client's going to be here with the result. A lot of the sellers I come across, they don't have an attorney yet. Like they have an attorney that maybe set up their LLC and stuff, but he is not an MA attorney. What's the recommendation that? Because my biggest fear is I, a good mergers and acquisitions attorney working with an attorney that doesn't know mergers and acquisitions is problematic. I'm new in this space. The reason I'm interviewing everybody is I'm learning and stuff, right? And the once or twice we got close enough for attorneys to start getting involved. The one thing I, the one, the biggest one I can remember, the attorney started getting involved, killed the deal because the attorney that I was working with is really good in this space, know this space, started talking to the other guy. And like, they just, he just said, this guy's a family attorney that set up their LLC, he has no space in this. And he's trying to throw out all the reps and warrants, like all the stuff that's normal in this. Right. It's standard provisions in every contract I've ever done for the 20 years I've been doing it. And he's trying to throw them out. This isn't going to work. He's never going to sell that business. And how do you, what do you say to the sellers out there about picking their attorney? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, really tough situation to be in because if you're the seller and the buyer comes to you and say, hey, my attorney and I were talking, your guy just doesn't seem to know. Like, why should he listen to you? Like, why should he trust you over his lawyer in a way? Especially maybe if it's family lawyer, who's done a lot of other storm, like kind of knows a lot of his personal private information. So there's a trust there. I mean, I guess you can try to mention it to him. Uh, I doubt that'll work really well. Maybe they'll listen or maybe they've noticed it themselves and didn't say anything because who are they going to say it to? Either I have to say it to the lawyer or say it to you, neither of which is a comfortable conversation. I have seen situations like that. It's Again, it's one of those situations where you might think that, oh, I'm the buyer side attorney. This is great. The seller doesn't have an attorney who kind of knows this stuff. So we'll be able to walk all over. They'll give us everything we want, but usually it goes the opposite. Usually it's what you're saying is they get, they know that they have to do something. They can see that these provisions have some potential downside for their client. If they don't know that those are standard or they don't know how to tweak that particular kind of language, not exactly what they do. It can really slow things down. I can remember a couple instances. I remember one instance where an attorney had referred something to me. It was a contract negotiation. It wasn't M&A, but it was a contract negotiation. And I let a provision in the first draft that I prepared that was in a way favorable to the other side, like we're giving them rights. 
And this attorney, who is a litigator, who kind of switched to transactional law, which is a whole other conversation. But but that attorney wrote to me, oh, why are we giving him that? We shouldn't give him anything. He's like, yeah, maybe in litigation you do way, but it's not really costing us anything. Okay, we could have held it back as a bargain, but usually that kind of thing, we just give it to him, especially because it was a, wasn't a deal. And again, I don't really see a huge benefit in creating issues that aren't that important. Just focus on the ones that exist that are important. Get it done as quickly as you can. Doing a good job, of course. But yeah, I guess that's about all you could do. Talk with your lawyer again if you're the seller side and that's what's happening. And see if the lawyer can do anything. Like I'm thinking if I'm in that situation, do. I guess you just don't like to be embarrassed. And they especially don't like to be embarrassed in front of their clients. I guess what I would try to do if I were the seller, or sorry, the buyer side, is maybe try to start to hint in oral negotiations that say something like, well, just a standard provision. I'm sure you've seen it many times. Or, well, I'm sure in the years you've been doing this, you've seen that's normal. Or something, they're starting to get the hint maybe, and, and hopefully they're starting to feel like I better back off here. I'm going to be made, I'm going to be exposed. Like my client's going to say, I don't really know this very well. Uh, that's probably the, the most sensitive touch point that I could think of in that kind of situation. So the thing that scares me is I am really blunt and straightforward. It wouldn't phase me a bit to call the seller's attorney and go, look, you're playing outside of your game here. Appreciate you. You're a family attorney. You set up LLCs and stuff, but you're hurting your client more than you're helping them. Do you have any friends or do you have any people that you would like, you know, you could reach out to that's been in this space. Right. And all you can do is hang up on me. Right. Because at this right. point, at, at that point, you're at the, you're at the stage where is my, is the attorney I acquire as the buyer going to be able to work with the, the seller's attorney when the seller's attorney is, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not incompetent. They're an attorney, but they're in proficient in that space right. and they're causing, That's also I was going to say they're, thing. go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No. I was going to um, say they're causing more problems than they're creating. <laughs> I mean, they're creating more problems right. than they're solving. Solving, yeah. That's also something that if you're the buyer, your lawyer isn't, doesn't do that or suggesting it health. You could ask. Like, why should I have to confront the lawyer? Why don't you call him and tell him that? Or they might even, your lawyer volunteer to do that. And yeah, in a way it's fair because I've had situations where I've been asked by a client to do something and maybe a new client, like someone I haven't worked with before. And on one hand, I'd like to take the business, but it's just kind of far enough outside of my, like this happened actually recently. This was actually fairly far outside of what I do, although there was overlap. And honestly, I think a lot of lawyers would say, eh, the part that I'm not so experienced at, I'll kind of be fine. Uh, to me, that's an uncomfortable position to be in. And I don't think it, I mean, maybe it could end well for you, but if that lawyer that you're talking about doesn't, he does not experienced in that, leaves the situation, he's got a client who's lost confidence in him, and he's got the other side's lost confidence in him, and the lawyer across the table has lost confidence in him. It hasn't really done himself a great big favor. So one way that you get clients sometimes is the other guy at the table. So the other side, not in that deal, obviously, but if they're impressed with the other side's lawyer, I don't know if I've ever had that happen. Maybe I've certainly heard of other lawyers who've had that happen. And the next deal, that guy comes to you. The next deal, it doesn't involve the same client. There's no conflict of interest, but they come to you and they become a client. That's um, interesting because one of the... One of the times I've had an issue, if you, I was in real estate before this, if you're real in real estate long enough, you're going to need an attorney. You're going to get sued, right? And did not, there was nothing I did wrong. As a matter of fact, I was actually countersuing somebody for something they did to me. So anyway, I reached out online and said, hey, I, I'm looking for an attorney. Here's the skill set I'm looking for. And somebody I knew in real estate sent me some, somebody. And when I contacted the guy, he was absolutely attorney. He was absolutely shocked that that guy referred him to me and I said, why are you so shocked? And he goes, well, I want a huge case against him. I'm the one, he had to go through bankruptcy two years ago and had to start over, right? Like, yeah, I'm the one that won that. And I said, well, then he's a good friend. Cause if you can get past him and like shut him down and, and the guy, anyway, we'll go into that story. Cause it's a longer story than I have time for. But the point is like, that's a good referral. It's like this guy tore my attorney apart. If you need an attorney, call him, <laughs> right? That's yeah. the kind of guy you want. So I get that. The best referral you can get is somebody across the table goes, man, 
um, went across paths with Emory. Or in this case, man, that guy was really new his stuff, really knew how to get this thing done. He was proficient, got it A to Z. Everything was amendable. Like if and say say it's like a cross state kind of transaction. Like if you're ever doing business in Nevada, that's the guy you want to call because we did one a few years ago and he just knew his stuff. That said, we're going to run out of time here. What's a what is the what states are you licensed in? How do people reach out to you? And what's your ideal client? License in California. You can reach out to me, sons.sperling at sperlinglawcorp, like corporation.com. Website, sperlinglawcorp.com. Go on LinkedIn. Uh, right now, that's pretty much the only networking presence I have. Although I might have some in the future. Those are the best ways to get in touch. Best is email, and I check it all the time. Okay. Uh, ideal client is a small, medium-sized company. Maybe they're doing a purchase like that, acquisition deal. Maybe they're doing something else. They have a contract. They need reviewed, negotiated business contract. So advise employment law, the kind of issues that business people have. I myself as a deals lawyer, and I've done a very wide range of different kinds of deals. Also, this is something I should mention because I often forget to mention it. Spent seven years in Japan. Was doing all international business because you know, I can't do Japanese law. I was there to do the international stuff. So I have a lot of experience with international stuff. And that's the kind of thing a few years ago, only bigger companies had international deals. Now lots of people have them, um, and it's not just the huge law firms that handle it. Smaller clients need a smaller law firm to help them with that. I do that as well. Okay, cool. Well, I think we've covered the thing really well. Maybe one of these days I'll bring you back on. We'll just spend an hour talking about doing international deals because I have a pretty decent, not Japan, maybe two guys I know that are in Japan that listen to us on a regular basis, but I have a pretty good Europe and Australia listening base just because I know people in those spaces. International deals are part of this conversation. So there might be a time where you and I just sit down and we talk about international deals for a bit. I want to thank you for having you on the show and let's call that a show for the day. All right, great. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale, and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline, leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now